maybe I, I would like to, to start with a couple of suggestions, uh, which uh, comes also from the, uh, the idea of the peace. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. But also to the, the moment in which this started, because it was a moment where your name was associated with uh, experimental music. Yeah. And this, this phase, I would say, retained somehow an echo of your involvement in the jazz or free jazz scene. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. that's what, because I remember when the record came out and in this uh, Brian Eno series, and it was sort of a sensation because it was uh, something that was really unclassifiable. It was, it failed, it, it fell between minimal and whatever. I mean, for us, when we were very young, was this, like a, like something of a fresh air coming from every side mm-hmm. of the musical interest that we had. So, and I read something about uh, it, and uh, maybe I want I wanted to ask you about uh, how, not specifically about this piece. We we will we'll come later to this, but uh, how was how did you feel your position as a musician in the scene at that time? It's quite a delicate balance. I'd, I'd given up playing jazz and free improvised music in 1966. And um, that's when I started thinking, I'd probably already started to think about being maybe a composer. And I had met Cage in 66, and I worked with him in America in 68. And it was when I came back from America uh, in the summer of 68 that I uh, got to know people like Cardio uh, and that whole circle of composers living in London and the whole collective of those which developed during the following year when they when he started the Scratch Orchestra. I was never a member of the Scratch Orchestra but I did a lot of work with them and I played in many of their concerts. It was just something I couldn't really, I could never uh, devote myself to a regular membership of anything really. So I, I was really unable to join a club but never I, I could enjoy their company and work with them. So that was the environment which I found myself. It was a kind of post-cage, post-fluxus environment where we were working on all kinds of uh, pieces, all sorts of music, much of which involved working with people who are not um, strictly musicians or uh, people who are maybe either amateur or even visual artists who would like to try different experimental things, events, uh, happenings, um, installations, all kinds of things. And that was the world in which we were. And one of the things that um, a number of composers did at that time was we were working with, if you like, found objects, just uh, reprocessing or making loops or whatever out of things we found and making fragments and so on. And that's, in a way, that's where Jesus Blood and the Sigmund of the Titanic fit into that because they both process an existing uh, musical image uh, and extend it by repetition. And that was part of the whole climate of that experimental music world. Um, there's also a certain kind of uh, enjoyably kind of crazy logic to a lot of the things uh, we did, um, which involved often things which were on the surface that fairly absurd. Um, but it was a, an environment in which uh, there's quite a large number of people who were involved, who many of whom probably wouldn't have actually been involved in music without this sort of collect- sense of being a collective. They were supported strongly by Cardio and others like John White, Chris Hobbs, 
those composers and those are a sense where we're all working for each other because none of us uh, were in a sense uh, accepted by uh, musical institutions. Uh, the, the establishment, for example, between 1969 and 1987, I had nothing at all played on the BBC. And so we were outside that context. Not, none of us would be getting support from the Arts Council in terms of uh, financial support or get commissions from orchestras or string quartets or choirs, or were, nor were we allowed to work in conservatories or music departments in universities. We were seen as being perhaps too radical, too extreme. Um, we were, that we were, we were doing was maybe even questioning what could count as music, but that follows from our work with Cage. You know, Cage did raise that fundamental problem. Eventually, anything can be music, provided your attitude and your philosophical approach is the right one. And um, so in that sense, we were sort of dangerous. Um, but the, our strength was in our uh, being uh, supporting each other, which we did through um, concerts. We would hire um, halls and give on performances. Um, uh, we, uh, Chris Hobbs started the Experimental Music Catalog, which is a way of distributing um, at that time things which were in manuscript. And I took that over in 1972. Um, so that was a way of a, a kind of publishing activity. Uh, there was a, an organization called Music Now, run by Victor Schoenfield, which put on concerts regularly at the South Bank, at the Queen Elizabeth Hall, at Purcell Room, uh, which we would hire and we would, nobody would get paid for the concerts, but we'd cover the costs by the sale of tickets and so on. So there was this kind of collective action uh, and that um, was something that kind of gave, it gave us strength. And the one place which was supportive were the uh, visual art schools, fine art colleges, who were interested in having people like me, Cardew, uh, and others, John Tilbury, would work in uh, along with painters, sculptors, printmakers on projects, and they could see similarities or relationships between what we were doing and the kind of art that was going on outside galleries from the late 50s through the 60s. And so the, the, that we found ourselves in that environment, which was a friendly one. It was also one where people would discuss ideas. Uh, so they would be interested in how we make art, just as we were interested in how they make art. So it was a, a kind of conceptual conversation rather than a technical one. If you've been in a musical music college, you'd be talking about how did you make this piece? But you were not talking about the ideas of the piece, you were talking about the craft of making it. And that was a fundamental difference, that in a sense the craft came later, the ideas came first. And sometimes, I would say early on, uh, there was a certain kind of absence of craft or the craft is weak. So for example, I would say that the first recording of Jesus' Blood in 75, which I did a piece in 71, the first recording was 75, I would say that uh, that uh, writing is less sophisticated than when I did the version in 1993, when I knew more about orchestration, and so I could work with other things. The one in 75, which is a 1971 version, was essentially simple and very kind of straightforward, and it became more complex. But at the same time, I never wanted anything of my, if you like, technical ability to overshadow the central image, which was this being support of this uh, recorded human voice. And everything that happened was in relation to that, not to make my, me look clever or 
you know, to doing beautiful things, but to enhance the, the, that voice. And that, so that was, in a way, I would say that's how our, uh, we developed. And gradually, I would say the craft moved, uh, developed, especially later by 1981, when I was asked to do my first opera with Bob Wilson in the day. Yeah. Then I had to develop a traditional craft. And that's when things changed quite fundamentally, though I still say that my roots are in exper experimental music. And so if someone asks me, well, what kind of music do you write? Well, I find it hard to say, but I would say my roots are in the music of John Cage and historical experimental music um, and those attitudes, even if the music doesn't sound anything like that. And one of the points, of course, of working with Cage is you find that anyone who works with Cage None of them ever write music which sounds like Cage, which is a sign of his greatness as a teacher. Whereas if you were to go to uh, Boulez, to Moderna, to Stockhausen, you would be expected to write music within that idiom. And, and in that sense, um, the teaching of Cage is much more open and leads, so I think, to more interesting results. And that's where we came from. Yeah, talking about Cage, I mean, how, uh, what was the first impulse to, to get to know Cage? I mean, did you, you moved to New York, you said, yeah? No, I, no, I, uh, I, first, I first knew of Cage's music when I was a schoolboy, when I was about 16 or 17. My music teacher told me about the work of Cage, which was very unusual for yeah. a, a music teacher in a small town in, in England. Mm -hmm. And when I was at university, I uh, uh, bought Cage's book, Silence, and there was a book by Calvin Tompkins called The Bride and the Bachelors, yep. which is an account of Cage. And I became interested in that. So all the time that I was playing, especially when I was moving more towards free improvisation from within jazz, I was interested in, a lot in Cage. And when I stopped um, playing uh, improvised music, uh, I met Cage because I went, uh, took some students of mine to a, a performance of Merce Cunningham in London in 1966. And I met Cage there and spoke with him and he asked me about what I did. So I showed him some things and he took two manuscripts back with him and uh, we sort of corresponded for a little while. And then I uh, had the opportunity to move to New York in the end of, beginning of 1969, end of six, no, end, uh, beginning of 68, sorry, uh, end of 67 to, uh, to work with some dancers at the University of Illinois. And I went there, and on the way, I stopped in New York for two weeks, and I bumped into Cage at a concert. And it turned out, and he remembered me, and we talked, uh, but he, as it turned out, was also living in the same place in Illinois. So we were in each other's company uh, for many months, and eventually he employed me as an assistant, because he knew under my tourist visa, I was not allowed to, to work. So the, in order for me to complete my projects, he paid me out of his own pockets to work for him, so I could complete my project, which was fantastically generous. Amazing, yeah. Um, and so, I, I, and Cage was a huge in influence on me. And uh, I performed a lot of Cage from that time onwards, especially during like the, uh, with his 60th birthday year in 72, there was a lot of things on in England and I was involved with those. And I've played a lot of Cage ever since. And now, of course, after Cage's death, I was the first composer commissioned for a new work for Merce Cunningham with Biped in 1999. So I found myself working with Merce in the mm. same way that John had done. That was a, a huge, huge privilege because seeing Merce and, 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 and John that night in November 1966, I would say it opened my eyes and my mind to what is possible. And I, I realized this is what I want to do when I saw that performance. 
Mm -hmm. Were you involved in, in actual performances by Music of Cage at the time? Uh, well, yeah, I, I had actually performed um, the sonatas and interludes uh, for oh. prepared piano. It is, in fact, it's probably the first performance in England, but nobody probably knows that. But that was in 1966. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it was. Uh, from when, when I met him in, in New York more then, uh, and, and in Illinois, that I was involved with performance along with other musicians in Illinois, people like Jim Fulkerson and oh, yeah. uh, those, come, they, were, they were students at that time. Mm -hmm. um, so we were all the same, same kind of age. Um, so that from then, then on, I, I was involved in performance with Cage, yeah. Okay. And since uh, Cage was famously against improvisation, probably yeah. the, uh, there was no chance, no pun intended, <laughs> that you met Cage precisely when you, you gave, we gave up improvisation. No, I think, so. I think it's, it's kind of coincidence that um, yeah. I, mm -hmm. I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd been interested in Cage and Cage's ideas and his approach to music, mm -hmm. even when I was uh, improvising. In a way, I would say that studying Cage and becoming aware of that kind of area of music was one thing which drew me away from improvisation. But I, I could see the limits of improvisation compared with the open possibilities within Cage's world. And that was one of the things which led me away. Um, it, it doesn't mean I can't improvise. I mean, I still can play jazz and I still can improvise and have done, but uh, it drew me away from that as a kind of a lifestyle. But it was it was certainly happened that I stopped playing Jazz. I stopped my last free improvising thing was in November. Actually, it was in November 1966, when I played three times with Derek Bailey and Tony Oxley in the same day, oh. at lunchtime in Sheffield, in the afternoon in Northampton, and the evening in London. Then I stopped playing altogether, and I went to the Cage performance shortly after that. So the two things are very close together, but I yeah. don't think one is not the cause of the other. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I correct me if I if I'm wrong, but I remember reading somewhere that during the existence of the Joseph Holbrook trio with Derek and Tony, uh, there were some kind of experiments in in chance operations. Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Yes, there was also some things where I uh, we I, we tried all sorts of ways. Um, before we became completely free, we tried all sorts of devices uh, to stimulate uh, improvisation or stimulate structured thought mm -hmm. and some of this involved me uh, doing some like colored charts uh, mm -hmm. where which would give sort of uh, sequences of things or possibilities mm -hmm. or even to do things even within let's say existing chairs uh, to do things where we would, would break the structure completely so for example i remember one thing we did once rather crazy idea was to if you were playing a song like say i don't know stella by starlight uh, instead of improvising on the chord changes as they are, you'd shift the chord changes in your mind to one back. So you were always in a different harmony from the one you're playing, yeah. for everyone else is playing. And it's very strange. Mm -hmm. And another was uh, at, uh, at some points we'd be playing and suddenly to stop and just freeze on that same chord. The rhythm can carry on, but the harmony just stays for, for maybe one or two minutes. And then we move on again, on, uh, just on agreements. And so a way of just breaking up routines. Yeah. Uh, some of this was by chance, some of this was by sort of um, sort of decision-making or signals or whatever we tried. And then eventually, of course, we realized that we didn't need any of that. So we just improvised freely anyway. So we, uh, we'd yeah. broken the ice as it were, but that, that was one of the devices we did use. Mm -hmm. There was an episode that happened in Chicago. I don't remember exactly when, 
uh, when some members of the Art Ensemble of Chicago asked Kay to have some sort of collaboration because they were very attracted to his aesthetics. But uh, Cage was very much disappointed because they, he felt that they were continuing improvising, listening to each other. And that was, yeah. that was terrible for him. I mean, he couldn't yeah. accept it. It was an, a failed experiment. Yeah, there, was, there were various things which Cage, I remember Cage said, Mm. that he had difficulty with. I think there was Beethoven, there was a vibraphone. I think uh, there was jazz. Oh, the vibraphone, yeah, he, he hated vibraphone. Yeah, and the electric uh, guitar. Also. Electric guitar, yeah. But little by little, he realized that uh, uh, his dislike of them showed, in a sense, a judgment of taste. And he wanted to avoid taste in sure. all his judgment. So little by little, he found ways of avoiding that, changing it. Mm -hmm. And as he said, in one case, one of the ways of of assimilating something into your existences as like cannibals would do. You simply eat it. And if, if you don't like someone, you eat them. And then eventually they are part of you. <laughs> <laughs> but there's one thing that is, I read some repeated, uh, that there was a precise, since you remember precisely when you stopped improvising, uh, not improvising, but making improvised music. And uh, that was, it's quoted an episode that you witnessed that made you decide to stop improvisation. It seems that there was some specific reason for doing so. Yeah, it was that it was that day, that day when I did those three concerts, three performances. Uh, the last one, which was at this place, the the Little Theatre Club in St Martin's yeah. Lane, which is a venue for free improvisation, all kinds yeah. of experimental yeah. things. Yeah. And that's I'd, I've been playing. I'd been playing there on my bass. And as quite often happens, if there's another bass player there, they'll ask about your instrument. It's, it's, it's a common thing, you know, what is your instrument? And eventually, can I try it? And this happened, and this bass player was playing, and I could see that he didn't really know what he was doing at all. It was just guesswork, and I just thought, well, it's a waste of time. I have a good technique. I know exactly what I'm doing. I was probably an extremely good bass player at the time. I just thought, this man is a clown. So I thought, if you can fool people like that, what's it, what's, it's a waste of time. So I stopped. I think it's now acknowledged. Someone put actually put on my on the Wikipedia uh, site, uh, Wikipedia page that it was Johnny Diani, and it was, it was Johnny Diani. Yeah. <laughs> well, late, later I got to know because, in fact, ironically, he lived in the same house as me for a time. Well, uh, it was, yeah, it was a very tight community. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, you had remembered the fact that uh, the the world of visual arts and especially educational institutions in visual arts were supporting uh, the scene. And it's inter interesting because uh, many rock acts at the time were promoted by the same circuit. Is that right? Yeah. And also quite a lot of rock musicians came through visual arts. I mean, I think uh, uh, John Lennon, uh, Pete yeah. Townsend, uh, they were all at art school. You know. mm -hmm. Yeah. I think it's very unique of the British scene. Well, the, the art schools had a very free... Um, not regimented approach. They uh, they were open-minded and and allowed experiment. There was also there was no, there was always division because the, you have within an art school you have the traditional painters, traditional sculptors who couldn't understand why this was going on. But there are others who were more open. But there are also people who were painters who accepted this was interesting even though it wasn't their work. So there was a kind of a, a free exchange of ideas in the art schools which you wouldn't find I would say in a music department. Mm -hmm. This reminds me also of the fact that mostly uh, all the experimentals, especially minimal music in the United States, was 
very much supported by art galleries, for example. Uh, and a particular artist, Sol LeWitt, paid for a lot of things for uh, Steve Reich, you know, and, and uh, the, you know, Donald Judd. Those artists actually, you know, they would put on concerts of Steve or Philip in their galleries in while their shows are on. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, and that's where that's where probably you know Michael Nyman used the word minimal music. It comes from that minimal art. Uh, that's sure. where. Uh, oh yeah, sure. historically, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, yeah. And you were also involved in that scene for a moment, right? Yes, yes. As a performer too, huh? Yeah, I mean, I I, I played in Steve Reich's uh, group. Where we, I toured with Steve Reich in 1972, playing drumming. Yeah, mm -hmm. uh, there were four of us, four English musicians. When he came over with drumming, which was a piece which had more in, uh, musicians in it than he would normally have so he took on four English musicians to save costs basically so myself Michael Nyman Connie's Cardew Michael Parsons and Chris Hobbs we all played with uh, we played drumming yeah well let's spend a word for for Cornelius Cardew too because I mean it's a pivotal figure in in, in British new music in new music in general I think when and where did you meet him well I first was in touch with him when I was actually uh, we didn't meet. I was living in Sheffield at the time I was playing with Joseph Holbrook. Mm -hmm. And I was interested, getting interested in experimental music and experimental music ideas. Mm -hmm. And I wrote to Cardew. Mm -hmm. uh, I got his address. I'm not sure where I got his address from. Anyway, I wrote to him asking if he knew of any other people who were interested in this kind of work in my area in the north, because he was in London and I was in Sheffield, which is, you know, 150 miles north of, uh, of London, if anybody else he knew. And he gave me two people's addresses. But it's a sign of his lack of knowledge of geography outside London that there were miles away in other directions. But there was uh, Howard Skempton was one uh, and uh, Laurie Scott Baker, those two. Laurie was in Newcastle, Howard was in Cheshire. And so I wrote to them as well. So I, I wrote to Cardio first. And then when uh, I started tr trying to write different things in within the sort of what I saw as a experimental world it was what I was writing at that time was probably more close to Morton Feldman uh, and some cage it was still used in those stations but in a very free way um, it was this was before I went just before I went to America I sent some of this music to Cardio uh, and so him to look at just to find out what he thought and he wrote back saying you're you're on the right track well done and that was it so when I came back from uh, America, I had to collect the music I'd sent to him. So we met, this would be about the summer of 1968 when I came back from America, picked the music up from his flat. Uh, and then after that, we, we knew each other very, quite well. You, you mentioned Martin Feldman. I mean, uh, did you meet him in person? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I met uh, Feldman several times. And Feldman mm -hmm. was, in, again, like Coach, incredibly helpful to me in a very specific way. When I went to... First in New York, I uh, contacted Feldman and went round to his house, his apartment in Lexington Avenue over on the top of a Chinese laundry. Uh, I went and spent some uh, the afternoon with him. We had coffee and he talked about his work and he showed me what he was doing. He showed me the music on his piano with his writing. It was called In Search of an Orchestration. Yeah. And his, in his room, there were uh, paintings by, you know, Rothko and all those kind of things, his friends. Uh, and uh, that was that was before I went to Illinois. And then when I came back from Illinois, I was in New York again for a short time before coming back to England. I went to see him again. Uh, and uh, in fact, he was interested to know what Cage was doing uh, because they, they were not that close by then. And I told him because he was Cage. I'd worked with Cage on the uh, harpsichord piece, HPS CHD, 
And he was sort of puzzled because this was like, he was, Cage was working with Mozart and all kinds of existing composers, and he thought it was very strange. Uh, but the one other thing that Feldman did uh, was very helpful was that when I'd flown to uh, America, um, my aunt gave me the, air, the money for the airfare. So I got a ticket, flew in January, and then I came back in the summer. It was an open ticket, but the problem was when I came back in the summer, the prices were higher because it was a tourist season, and I didn't know that. So I was short of $100 to cover the return costs, and I didn't have $100. Feldman offered to give me the $100. I didn't ask him, but he, he, he did. Um, eventually, my brother wired it over, but Feldman, out of his own generosity, offered to pay. And I've always been very grateful to both Feldman and Cage for those, li those little gestures, which were personal. And I've always liked Feldman's music anyway. Uh, I like it very much. And uh, when he came to England, I would see him sometimes when he came over here, uh, or we'd meet at festivals when other composers were, I think, in Berlin in 1972, when I was there with Steve Reich with, with drumming. Uh, there was a festival there, and Cage was there too. Um, so I, I would see him from time to time. Um, I wouldn't say we were close at all, but uh, yeah. we got on well. And I, I'm not sure that he had a lot of close friends. He was a very strange guy, but I, I, know, I, I, I actually liked him. He was someone who was always looking for a, a debate or an argument, and uh, yeah. he just loved to talk. Where were there talks uh, on music uh, with Feldman? You, you remember something in particular? Just no, I, no, I, I think it, we would. He would, would you, talking about. Uh, he wanted to know what I was doing, and I showed him yeah. some of my my pieces, and he could see these mm -hmm. were like similar in terms of these kind of vertical yeah. aggregations and so on, isolated harmonies, which were not sequential in Sequential. any way. And mm -hmm. he could see, and so he, he, he showed me what he was doing and he, he, he played something, uh, put his hands on the piano, played something and moved his hands a little bit more and then played something. And then he would write it down once he got the sound he wanted. So it was, what he was doing was entirely uh, by choice, uh, by his yeah. hands. It was not, uh, there's no system it wasn't abstract or any kind of uh, mm -hmm. using any formula at all. It was entirely for his ear. Yeah. And he would sit, because it was, you know, it was very short sighted, as you know, and he would sit yeah. with his face very close to the keyboard and play these notes and squint, and then he'd write them down. And yeah. so I saw him do that. And yeah, yeah, he talked true. about that as being his way of working. Yeah, yeah that's true. Curiously, in fact, in Italy, uh, I played, I wrote a piece for myself and Derek Bale after I stopped. Now, this is why I was still working with Derek for guitar and piano, which is a kind of Feldman type piece. And Derek had played it. John Tilbury also played it with Derek. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I, the manuscript was lost. An event quite recently it was found, and this is from 1965. And I played it with an Italian guitarist in uh, Vercelli in Bologna. Sergio Sorrentino, is it? Mm -hmm. Um, and we did, a, we did a couple of concerts together. Mm -hmm. I, I did a concert also with him as well, with the percussionist, um, Antonio, uh, I forgot Antonio's name, but we did concerts together. But anyway, this, got, this piece called, it was called Catalogue. Uh, we played it um, and it was very strange because I, I have no memory of this piece. This, it was from 1965 and I'm playing it some maybe 53 years later. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was very odd. I mean, I, I could tell that I had written it, but I had no memory of it at all. Mm. And I found it very strange. And I've played also with my own guitarist uh, since. 
I should publish this. And I say, well, it's not anything like me anymore, but at least it is recorded. I mean, there are, have been performances that are not on record yet, but they, they, it does exist. But that's, uh -huh. that's a piece from 1965. At the time when I was starting to feel my way uh -huh. uh, in this sort of Feldman sort of world, but while I was still at the same time playing uh -huh. free improvisation. Uh -huh. So in a way, this is something which the kind of thing I would probably have shown to Feldman, I imagine. Yeah, uh -huh, I see. And your, your, I mean, your knowledge of the music of Feldman was mainly through records or performances. I there were some broadcasts, I think, in the uh, early sixties. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one particular piece, a very beautiful piece for violin, tuba, and piano. It's one of those kind of durations pieces. Durations, yeah, it's one of the durations. Wonderful, uh, most, but it's mostly from broadcast but i what i did when i was working as a professional bass player mm -hmm. i used all the money most of the money i earned i used to buy scores of feldman cage mm -hmm. uh, earl brown christian wolf some stockhausen some messian and uh, every week i would go to the music shop in sheffield and there's a big pile of music and they, they as soon as they came in they said oh it's, it's, it's his music they i was the only one died. i would order it and this stuff would arrive uh, <laughs> we're supporting the shop because they were expensive <laughs> well, they were, and, and, and they, were, they were very badly produced. I mean, the Peter's edition things of Cage were just kind of prints of, of his manuscript, you know, and yeah, uh, know. and you pay a lot of money. But anyway, I bought all that and I studied it all. That's how I spent time with that music. And then, of course, I did get the George Avakian recording of the Cage 25-year retrospective concert. I, I got that uh, box set of uh, vinyl records as well, and that came out. So, I, I you know, I found everywhere I could to get information. Uh, let's go back to uh, the um, record production of the Jesus Blood Never Failed Me Yet. But you say that you produced the recording in 71 and the actual record came out four years later. So uh, what was the impulse for the, the first production? I mean, how come that the record was made four years later? Was well, this... I, may, I started making the piece in 71. Because yeah. um, <clears throat> 71 was when I first heard the, the recording of the voice, which was going to be thrown away. It was just on a, a piece of tape. Which, uh, which was given to me. Um, I helped out a friend who was working on a film and all the tapes, uh, which is about homeless people, everything, all the sound tapes he didn't use for the production, he gave to me. So I would have a, a big reel of tape, which was very useful. I, I couldn't afford it. So this uh -huh, was, uh -huh. but by accident, just on one occasion, I listened to this tape all the way through, which is where I heard the old man's voice. Mm -hmm. And that's when I made the decision to make a piece out of it. This was within a collection of sort of discarded tapes. There's no. a number. Of, uh, there was a number of discarded tapes. This is one. It was a long tape, maybe about uh -huh. thirty minutes of, of inter things where people, old men were, uh, people living on the street were interviewed. Most of them were drunk. Sometimes they would sing. They would talk about their lives. It was just very random. And but in the middle of all this was this one moment. Mm -hmm. this twenty six seconds where this man sang this song. Mm -hmm. And it was suddenly, it was like a jewel. It was something else, unlike anything else in the whole thing. As it turned out, this old man was the only one out of all of them who didn't drink at all. He was not alcoholic. Um, I mean, he almost certainly died very not, not long afterwards. No, we know nothing about him at all, sure. even though I, I had, did try. But uh, I, I, start, I made that piece in 71. And then I did, a, in 72, we did the first live performance of it. Uh, we, I, I made a simple recording just with a few friends in 71, which was just uh, with people like Cardio on cello and so on, just about maybe 10 of us. 
Mm -hmm. um, and then in, in 72, we had the first live performance. Then I started to give live performances. I did some in Belgium and elsewhere. I did one which John Adams uh, uh, directed with me in San Francisco in 74. And eventually, uh, I do not, and each time that I would do the piece, I, some other instruments would be there, which I hadn't used before. So I'd have to do an, another instrumental group. And little by little, these added up. So in 1975, when Brian Eno started Obscure Records, um, we, um, uh, I made a kind of a score, which was all the different groups we had and some which we didn't have already, like for example, Four French Horns, to make an orchestral version. And that was the recording. The piece had existed for four years, but in various ways and different kind of live performances. In fact, there had been discussion about possibly making these recordings in 73. But uh, at that time, there was, um, uh, in 73, there was uh, the Arab-Israeli war when a big petrol shortage and all vinyl production stopped for a long time. So that didn't happen. But 75, Brian came back to it. And then he proposed this plan of a series of records. And um, the first one he wanted to do was these two pieces, uh, Sinking of the Titanic, which was the main side. Jesus' Blood was the B side. Uh, that would be the first one, Obscure One, and then there were uh, three others in the first series which were released. Um, uh, so there were four altogether initially, and the idea was he would try to get out maybe uh, maybe 10 a year, but in the end uh, we managed a total of 10 over three years, because by then he started to do things, he'd be away working with David Bowie in Berlin and so on, so he had to give attention to it all. So, but he, I act as a kind of advisor and so did Michael Nyman on the kind of repertoire and some things he found himself too. So it was a mixed thing, but so we, it was a project where we were all involved. And I'd known Brian when he was a painting student before he became involved in music at all. So, uh, and he'd gone to a lot of the concerts we organized with this experimental music stuff in the late sixties. Um, and he felt but a lot of that music that he heard there, although it was contemporary, it was not kind of alienating like, say, some avant-garde music was for a popular audience. And he said he felt there were things there which were potentially very attractive, uh, which uh, an, a non-musical specialist could enjoy and, and find uh, some sort of relationship to. So that's what that was the idea for Obscure. Later, he then moved into ambient as a similar concept, but uh, more specifically ambience. Um, but the, it, it was his way of sort of paying a debt to the music he'd heard before he became a musician, uh, which I think was a very, very incredible thing to do. Mm -hmm. And we were friends. I, I, we knew each other for years. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I gathered that the piece uh, existed for a number of years without um, a specific notation or what. I mean, just you said that you felt the necessity to notate the piece when it was the moment to, to make in a record production or what? No, the, uh, I, I, well, I made a, a full score notation. Well, I, I would score. make notations uh, for each group and then each group would like a string quintet, uh, uh, some woodwind. I'd give their notation and then there was a, a time plan mm -hmm. of when they would play. So there wasn't a, a full score. There was individual ah, materials. Because yeah. it was in principle was not coordinated, of course, and um, the, only, the only coordination was the old man's voice. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. It, and and the orchestration was not fixed, of course. I mean, you, you you weren't interested in specific orchestration, except for the group that you happened to work with. Right? Whatever group, I mean, I, I would play maybe with uh, a group somewhere, and there would be a harp player, which we didn't have, uh, and so that when we uh, eventually I put that into the score. So when I 
did the recording in 1975, it was mm. almost a way of saying, well, look, this has all the different things I've done so far. And it's a way of doing a, like almost a definitive score. Mm -hmm. And from in my mind, I thought that was a way. So now I no, need no longer play it live because I, that's it. It didn't work out like that, but that was my plan. That was the end, but it wasn't, yeah, yeah. of course. Right. I read that you, um, and you said it before, that the 93, 1993 version was out of quite a different in, intention, right? Well, that was because Philip, I mean, Philip Glass, so I, I met Philip and Steve in 1970 when they were, both came to England for the first time and mm -hmm. we became friends. And I, they, they played in each other's group in those days, of course. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I remember Philip having a concert at the Royal College of Art and there were, I think, six people in the audience and there were six people in his group. You know, that was, it was, it was <laughs> crazy. But when Philip started his, his record label Point, Mm. He asked me he'd like to put something of mine on there, and I sent him various mm -hmm. pieces of, of, of music and recordings and so on, which I would thought would be quite nice to get out. But he wanted to do Jesus Blood, mm -hmm. um, and so I said, "Okay, fine." But and then he was concerned. He said, "But what else would he put on, on the recording?" And I said, "Nothing," because uh, the only reason the piece has been whatever length it was was because of a physical constraint. Exactly. The, the, the vinyl was 24 minutes because after that you run out of quality. Mm -hmm. uh, the live performances were 30 minutes because that was the length of the reel of tape on which you played back the recording and so on. So with a, with a CD, I could go to maybe 75 minutes or so. And he was uh, sort of a little bit worried because he thought, well, wouldn't it become sort of rather boring and repetitious? I thought, well, that's a very funny thing for you to say. But, <laughs> uh, but in fact, because his what he would have done would have been to take that 1975 version a, re a repeat each repetition three times mm -hmm. so that would then make it three times as long but what i said i would do was i'd keep exactly the structure of the 1975 version for the first 25 minutes of the new version and then it would move the, the voice would carry on but the the musical territory the accompaniment, uh, the background support would change. So you get some kind of orchestrations, which I wouldn't have thought of uh, in 1975. You know, some sort of uh, things with uh, one ensemble, I think with two trombones, two French horns and a contrabassoon. Mm -hmm. Some things with with, uh, with uh, untuned percussion, a choir uh, and so on, and various other things like that. Uh, and then, so it had went on another journey. But in my mind, if people really wanted, only wanted the original version, the first track, 25 minutes, they could just play the first track and they would have exactly that, exactly. but with better players, because mm -hmm. all these players in New York were from the New York Philharmonic and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. And there was a fundamental difference. You know, when I mm -hmm. uh, did the 975 recording, some of the instruments we didn't have, like, for example, the four French horns. So I had to hire musicians from orchestras. Yeah. And every one of those musicians from orchestras they, I paid them, but they said, we don't want our names to be on the record. It would damage our careers. So you, if you look at the, the listing of musicians on that first recording, it's very strange. Uh, the, a lot of instruments are not identified at all. But when I did the 1993 version, everyone wanted to be named. In fact, there was a yeah. guitarist, there was a guitarist there who would phone me up just to make sure I got the spelling of his name correctly. And so I would have someone who had been who had been the concert master of New York Philharmonic leading the violins. You know, it was incredible. Um, so there, that everything changed. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing that did change was when I, uh, Philip, one of Philip Glass's managers, a guy called Rory Johnson, uh, was in charge of these projects. 
uh, I was speaking to him on the phone and we, he wanted to know how would the piece would evolve over time and so on. And I, I found myself saying, I, I hadn't given any thought. I, I said then about around about sort of 55 minutes or so, uh, Tom Waits will, will join the old man singing. Uh, and he just very shocked and surprised, but he also could see this, is, this would give it to like a commercial possibility at all, which I hadn't thought of at all. Mm -hmm. I, I thought of that because I would be in touch with Tom before that mm. uh, about other things. Uh, Tom and I, I uh, um, had been in touch because, in fact, in the 80s, 86, I think it was, uh, he got in touch, I think, through my, my manager's office, late 80s. Uh, he was touring, coming to tour uh, UK, and he'd lost his final copy of Jesus' Blood. Oh. And, he, and he said it was his favourite recording. And did we wow. have a copy? So as it happened, we did. And so we sent this to his management. So he got this vinyl. Um, mm. And then, in fact, he gave me two tickets for his concert, which, as it happened, I couldn't go. So in this concert was sold out. There were two empty tickets. That's because I couldn't. I wasn't there. Mm. And then after that, uh, he started working with uh, Robert Wilson. Uh, yeah. And, uh, of course, I'd worked with Bob Wilson in 81, 82, 84. Um, and... Um, I saw the performance of Black Rider in Paris. Uh, we, then we were in touch. I was developing an idea for uh, my second opera, which is Dr. Ox's Experiment. Uh, and two of the characters in there are people from a different world altogether. I was interested in Tom performing in this opera, and he was interested. But all this was by, you know, faxes, telephone conversations in those days. Um, but we were in touch about ideas. And so when this uh, the Jesus Blood recording came up, he and I were in contact. So maybe he was in my mind, that's why it came up. But, and I also decided that with this, I wouldn't have, um, he wouldn't repeat uh, the accompaniment like the accompaniment does, or like the old man does. He will sing along with the old man, but in real time. Oh. And so, so it became as if the old man had found a companion. Now, this is not just uh, uh, things going along with him. This was someone of a similar wavelength, and he agreed to do it. Um, so that's where that came from. And I mean, the story of how we did it, that was get, got quite complicated and, and very close to disaster. But anyway, it, it worked. Now, that's a fascinating story. I always love this idea of this, of the journey of this piece from, an, uh, from the word of... Uh, of a niche of experimental music up to the yeah. mainstream pop you, you, music. It's amazing. Without, then, without, I mean, always being the, the same thing. You know, it's, yeah, it's, and also there was, there was no intention, there was no plan. One, and in fact, when, when we were doing uh, the piece, I recorded, I think in 1992, at the end of 1992, in November, we recorded all the uh, music in New York at Philip Glass's studio, um, but without Tom, because Tom was working in Europe with Bob Wilson. Mm -hmm. And so he was going to go home for Christmas and so on. And I said, well, we get in touch in the new year. And then in January, uh, he didn't answer his phone. No faxes got through to him. Nobody could find him. Nobody reached him at all. And little by little, uh, the release date was going to be something like May. Mm -hmm. And it was getting closer and closer. And eventually, uh, I, I would leave messages on his hand, voicemail and so on. And I'd never get anything back. And then eventually, one day, I, I just about a letter of voice message, and I just said, "Well, Tom, I'm, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work out. It would have been great, but never mind. Uh, no hard feelings. We just go 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 ahead and do it. But if you, if you can do it, you know, it would have been great." 
so when I so I, I went to the pub for a drink and I came back and I checked my voice, no answer. But then when I, I called him again, his outgoing message had changed. So it was not the same message. So I knew he was there. And then I left a message again. And this time he called me back. And then he just said, he apologized. He said, hey, again, I'm so sorry, man. It was, uh, but then eventually he said, yes, we will do it. And, but the way it was done was he would only do it with just me and him and his engineer in California, not in New York. So nobody from the production would go to the California, only me. So I went to New York. I got a, a large reel of multi-track tape, two-inch tape, uh, flew to California, to, uh, to San Francisco, drove to Northern California to the studio, uh, met Tom, his wife and kids, and we spent the day together <coughs> recording it. Uh, and it was fantastic. And uh, as it happens, we had to use fairly sh not very long takes because the um, the real size on the studio tape machines was it was too uh, small for the big tape, so we had to cut the tape in half. So we, instead of having thirty minutes, we had fifteen. Yes. Uh, uh, but and Tom, so Tom would be in the next in a booth just singing with the old man. Uh, for, we did like fifteen minutes like that. Now we had the second reel, so there was a whole. Uh, pre-mix, uh, rough mix of the thing and several blank tracks so Tom could sing. And then uh, Tom suggested uh, and his engineer suggested that there's a room which is called the waiting room at this uh, studio. It's called Prairie Sun Studios. which And it's a, a series of like old chicken shacks, just chicken huts and it's a farm, but they converted. And one of these was where all Tom's instruments were and where he recorded. So the idea was we'd record now in his room uh, so it was just me and him there and the engineer in the other room. Um, and so that was, we did that. And sometimes I would play one of his harmoniums, one of his keyboards <coughs> while he sang. And then sometimes he'd sing through a voice gun and all kinds of things. And eventually it was done. And then I went back to New York with this tape. And then I put it all uh, together because what I then had to do is to find out of all these different sequences to find uh, a way which made sense because some, he was singing generally like four or five repetitions before he'd stop and then try a new idea. So I tried uh -huh. to keep these ideas in sequence. So I spent a long time annotating these. But one of the things that happened was that when we were making the recording, when the recording was planned, I'd worked with the Frankfurt Ballet with William Forsyth there, and they were interested in the possibility of having the rights to use this for a dance performance. So when I was uh, back in New York with doing this, uh, Bill Forsyth came to see me because he was in, in America, showed him what I was doing. But the Frankfurt Ballet were not sure whether they wanted Tom or not. So we had to do, we did one mix, which doesn't have Tom. So somewhere there is a mix of the whole thing without Tom at all. Yeah. Um, uh, but and, and then when Frankfurt Ballet eventually did do, Bill did do his piece, it was called Quintet, which is a piece he still plays performed different companies he decided to orchestrate it from the old obscure vinyl and of course the frankfurt ballet were horrified they spent i don't know how many thousand you know about fifty thousand dollars or whatever and he was he was doing with a recording which cost him like 10 cents mm -hmm. um but so they um uh so as a compromise what i did i got the version uh edited so that it was exactly the same 
uh, but with the new new sounds. Uh, so he could he could use that, and that that was done. Um, uh, so that that became part of this, this ballet. But I, I I do still have all the other. Uh, recordings of Tom singing with the, the, the voice, which we didn't we didn't use. I have maybe I don't know twenty minutes more. I could issue those, but I have to get agreeing with Tom. The project was uh, it was full of tension uh, and difficulty, but it was in the end it was a very good project. And uh, and Tom and I, uh, I haven't seen we haven't met since, but we stay in touch. Uh, yeah. Sometimes he want, he he edited a. A magazine, and he wanted to include um, Jesus uh -huh. Blood as, as well as an album, and so on. So he, yeah, we're yeah, staying yeah. in touch, mm -hmm. and I always send him birthday greetings. Uh, I came across a sermon that a priest gave, uh, quoting extensively and taking your your piece, and it's 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 a quite a good sermon, and it's uh, I think he, he really he really had uh, it really captured the spirit of, of the piece. And um, it's curious because this, this operation comes back to the church. And I, I, I read about, I mean, your beginnings in the church. I mean, I think the church music uh, was uh, helped probably shaping your attitude to, uh, to our composition. And, Certainly as a, as a child, I, my mother and father went to church. My uncle was a church organist. I went to church uh, maybe twice on Sunday uh, and I sang in the church choir uh, and eventually I sort of lost my faith. I studied philosophy and became agnostic. Later I became more interested in Zen Buddhism and so on, but I still respect uh, Christianity. But it, I, in a way, what I always have to say is that Jesus' blood is not a religious piece. It's not a Christian piece. It is a kind of a human and uh, and if it, it can be used in a, in a liturgical way. And in fact, now, Mm -hmm. We have every year in London, on the first Thursday in November, there is a, a, um, a service at St. Martin in the Fields for yes. all those who died homeless in London in the previous year. And we play Jesus' Blood at that service every year now. And, and I, there's, a, there's members of my own ensemble, but there are two choirs of homeless people who also sing with us. Uh, and it's an extraordinarily moving thing, um, uh, especially having it sung by homeless. And, and of course, I did do this 12-hour through the night performance uh, at the Tate uh, in uh, 2019, which also included uh, two orchestras, my ensemble, and two homeless choirs. Um, so it has come all the way around, and, and it has become like a kind of a, a sort of hymn for the homeless as well. Uh, there was a, a story connected to the preparation of the of the recording, uh, which I read precisely. I'm trying to find out the, the exact word that there was. By the way, uh, this is the um, the sermon I'm referring to was delivered by this uh, Reverend Dominic Barrington at St. James Cathedral in Chicago. As Gavin Breyer, as a composer, who made famous this old man's song, as he was working on this recording one morning, he went to make a coffee and he left the tape loop of the old man playing in his office, adjacent to a staff common room in the university in which he worked, unaware that the song would be overheard. And when he came back with his drink, he said, I found the normally lively room subdued. People were moving around more slowly than usual and a few were sitting alone quietly weeping. Is that accurate? It's true, but, we, but it wasn't the whole piece. What it was, was when I'd, uh, at the weekend, I'd heard the uh, the recording and I made a loop mm -hmm. and I played the loop on my tape recorder round and round again. 
And that's when I sketched out the, uh, the harmony. But uh -huh. on the Monday, I then went to the, the, the university where I was teaching and I took this tape loop with me because it was very fragile and I wanted to copy it onto a reel-to-reel -reel tape so it was safe. Uh -huh. So what I did, there was this uh, the kind of the, a little music studio, which was just off the main art studios, where there were two Revox tape recorders. Yeah. So I could copy, uh, have get the loop going and copy onto the other. So this was going to take about maybe 30, 35 minutes. So mm. I got it going after about 10 minutes. I realized, well, it's fine now. So I went downstairs to get the coffee, which is exactly when I came back, what you described was happening. So it was just the old man's voice on its own. And that's oh, yeah. when, so that's when I realized at that time how powerful the old man's voice was on its own without anything. So mm -hmm. that's why I, I, it made me even more serious mm -hmm. to be... Uh, very strict and not to fool about at all that it had a, a kind of a power of its own no that's a true story yeah. <laughs> great well <clears throat> talking about about the uh the fact that this piece came to you in a moment where there was a work on found objects found things is that right i mean there yeah. was of course the the power of the very information coming from this piece of tape was was the impulse for for doing what what we know, but uh, generally speaking, you were interested in that. I mean, just uh, just working with found objects. Yeah, Sink of the Titanic is the same thing with, with the. Same, hill. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I didn't do a lot of it, but th this was something which other composers were doing. John White, for example, he did lots of pieces yes. where he would process by sort of deconstructing music by Elizabethan keyboard players and so on and. Uh, or by Schumann and, and reconstruct different things. In a way, when Cage made harpsichord, of course, he was deconstructing Mozart and all the other things. So there was a sense in which that yeah. idea was mm -hmm. in the air, but it's also something because when I was working in an art college, of course, I have a, had a great interest and developed an even greater interest in the work of Marcel Duchamp, where the ready-made, of course, is at the center of his work from a certain period. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it resonated with other artistic ideas, yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely uh, an archival attitude in artistic creation by my own. Yeah. Do yeah. you think this, is, this, is, this method is still viable to you? Um, yes, it can be. It, 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 it's not something I would seek, not something I, I would look no. uh, mm -hmm. for, but um, if the right thing occurred, uh, I, I would do something like this. I, I mean, I have, I have worked with existing material in some other situations, but not, not quite uh, as fully as this, where this becomes a whole piece. Uh, but I certainly have used some existing material in other pieces. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed talking to you and um, to remembering things and uh, fortunately my memory is still pretty good um, and I, I hope it will stay that way you know it doesn't happen with all old people but I'm only old in body my mind is still sharp I thank you so much for that